Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I am Sammy Ray. I'm currently in Brooklyn, New York, where I live, and I front the eight-person Brooklyn-based band, Sammy Ray and the Friends. There ain't nothing to rattle about. There's no one in particular who's making you move. On a Monday get-together, and by Friday you've already fallen out of the groove. I have to give you many high fives as a, a person who, for many years, led an eight-piece band. Our Dust Bowl Revival crew's more like seven these days, because that's okay. more reasonable, maybe. Yeah. But there is a magic to an eight-piece band. Yeah, symmetry. I don't. I'm not. Quite, I'm, yeah, it is the symmetry. I'm not quite sure what it is. It's funny because we don't often stop and think about the fact that we're literally an octet and so we joke and we're like yeah think about a quintet plus a trio think about two quartets you know it's really it's really big but there is some magic to it and at this point you know we're just like a whole bunch of siblings and it's a giant family where nobody looks like each other Well, okay then. I almost got so lost in the feeling there, I didn't do the intro. My name is Zach Lubitton, your friendly host of The Show on the Road, where every week or every other week, when I'm not getting stuck in the Phoenix airport like I was last week playing my own music, I try to bring you my favorite artists, songwriters, and band leaders from around the world. And our episode today features one of the best young band leaders that exists on Spaceship Earth right now. Look, I have a special respect for someone like Sammy Ray. When we were both in our early 20s, we decided to do something kind of crazy. We both got out of college, and we were doing other types of jobs. She was waitressing, I was working in advertising, and you know what? We both started dreaming about starting a band. And when you're young and inspired and a little bit ignorant, maybe you're waiting tables like Sammy, and you're dreaming about starting that perfect jazz pop band that no one has ever seen before. Common sense and basic economics tell you to start small. Get a few like-minded musicians in a room, work and work and work on your best songs, maybe try packing out a few local bars, put out some radio-ready singles on the internet, make a music video or two, and then see what happens. But Sammy Ray and I, well, we kind of had to do our own thing. We did the complete opposite. I wanted to combine what Benny Goodman and his orchestra had in the 1940s with what Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band had in the 70s and 80s. And Sammy... Well, when she moved to New York City, she began trying to harness the open-minded, countercultural energy of Broadway musicals with the slinky funk pop of 1970s AM Radio Gold and her own rapid-fire poetic style to create a massive sound that could only be made with three singers and two saxophones and a fearless, seasoned rhythm section going full speed behind her. Now, they are early on in their journey, but so far the response from listeners around the world is undeniable. And if there's one thing totally undeniable that I've learned in my 20 years playing in bands, 
is that when a big old brass band is going full speed, there is nothing that can stop them. Speaking of big old brassy bands, my group Dust Bowl Revival will be playing up in Northern California this weekend, September 18th at the Mountain Soul Festival in Santa Cruz, and a very special outdoor show at the Hot Monk Tavern in Nevada on the 19th. Please check it out, dustbowlrevival.com, and here she is now, the one and only Sammy Ray. Can you introduce us to the crew that usually goes out with you? Yeah, for sure. So we are eight all the time members. And if I have to do it quick, I say Max and Myra, Kellen and Kaya, Will and Seabass, Sammy and JQ. And so uh, Max is a, a plays synthesizers and tenor saxophone. Max is from LA. Uh, Kellen plays alto saxophone. Kellen is from the great state of Alabama. Um, Kaya and Myra sing backup for us and dance and kind of share the front person role, I guess. And they are uh, New York City born and bred. JQ is our bassist. He's from Miami. Um, Seabass is our drummer. He's from Virginia Beach. And Will is our guitarist and keys player. He's from Connecticut and I am the front person and... I'm also from Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, the venue choices and or uh, experiences that you probably had as a kid when you tried to start writing songs and performing were probably slim, but you, I think, drove yourself to do it from a pretty young age, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I didn't necessarily grow up in a heavily musical household. Like my dad played guitar in high school and college on and off. So there was always a guitar around, but they had me kind of young. So before 10, I thought that music was like White Snake and Led Zeppelin and Ozzy and like Twisted Sister and all that, which ACDC, Kiss, which is great music, don't get me wrong. Um, but then when I was 12, I started to get into like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Fleetwood Mac. And I started to kind of understand the craft of putting music and lyrics together, the, the art of songwriting. So I started doing that when I was like 13, honestly. And I played my first show at this little indie venue that was all ages in Connecticut when I was 15. And it was me at a grand piano, which I'm sure was something to behold. And then I came to New York when I was 18 and I came actually to study to be a teacher to get my teaching license. And after a semester and a half, I was like, I don't know what the hell's going on. And now I'm in New York and I was getting all these musical opportunities. So I actually left school at 19 and moved to Brooklyn. And then I was like full throttle in the city, doing the thing, trying to find people to play with. I always joke with my wife that it seems the more I research it, that the people who are truly successful in this life are all college dropouts, which makes me feel sure. bad that I graduated mm. with honors with creative writing, you know, at What's University of Michigan. What's the matter with you? I should have dropped out like right at the last moment <laughs> just so I could like be in the cool kids club. In the cool kids club. Um, it's funny. I mean, I think when it comes to music, particularly with songwriting, or if you want to do what I want to do, like, or what I wanted to do, you kind of go to college for the sole purpose of making connections to the future yeah. of your you know, 
like you have it or you don't have it. And that's not to say that you can't teach somebody to be a better musician. You absolutely can. I'm not discounting academia in, in a whole, but a lot of, you know, a lot of the folks in my band, a lot of the people I run with are like Berkeley guys. And they're like, dude, you know, I had it. I just made connections with the future of my industry. And, and I think it even like benefited me in a way because I was already on the scene for two years by the time that everybody was in my band who did a four year program, like had graduated, you know, mm. and, at this, and you know, by that age, I was making connections with the future of my industry and running with that same crowd. Now we joke and we'll be at an open mic or whatever. And people are like, did you go to Berkeley? And I'm like, oh yeah. And they're like, when I'm like, oh, the year Seabass was there. And I just joke, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it was definitely um, a moment for my family, right? And there was this whole, you're taking a break to screw your head on and you'll go back, right? And I was like, yeah, for sure, but... Very soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think they're holding out for that hope anymore. I mean, I'm still paying off my student debt from a year and a half, so... And I know you guys just put out this uh, really cool EP, uh, Let's Throw a Party, but uh, I want to jump back real quick to the 2018 EP, The Good Life, which kind of kicked it all off. And um, honestly, the song Kick It To Me is so cool to me because it's obviously taken off 8 million streams, but it's like six and a half minutes with like a jazz odyssey at the end. I love when people actually give experimental big songs a chance, you know? Uh, I mean, thank you. I know we used to have a lot of bad days My stomach got too hurting in the worst way Singing the blues all on my own In a dark room, nobody there All on my own in a dark room But nowadays we got We're told, I think, as songwriters that, you know, anything over three and a half, four minutes, it's like, well, it's going to have to go somewhere in the back of the record or yeah. uh, no one's going to play it on, uh, you know, any sort of AAA radio or, you know, it's going to be something that's too much for people to process in this distracted era that we're in but it's not always true right yeah, i think yeah, like yeah. people really like to dive in to deep songs and i i am dropped into this world that you put us in this song of those early days when you're playing these empty clubs you got that sinking feeling in your stomach that nobody's gonna show up no one's gonna support my art uh and then you start kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and i think that's why we all do this why we keep performing when a few more people start showing up we start seeing yeah. our abilities get better and uh tell me about those early days when you first started performing in new york um yeah for sure i want to quickly mention something interesting about the kick it to me outro that you brought up so there's the single version that came out first and like kind of went bananas and had a little spike. And then when we put out the EP, Kick It To Me, the extended version is the last track on that record. And what I wanted to do was in that Odyssey space, essentially the rhythm section is vamping, but the horns and the background vocals are quoting the hooks from every other tune on the EP. So they're singing little moments of the previous songs on the EP. Hmm. And I wanted to just kind of like bring it all home as if we had like gone on a journey and we were reflecting. Very Sergeant Pepper of you. Thank you very much. Yeah, very Wings, very ELO. Um, And then for some reason that ended up being the version that kind of went bananas, which I was super surprised about. Um, 
but yeah, I, that's cool. I thought that we were really taking a big risk there and, and that's the version people liked. But anyway, you had asked about early New York. Yeah, just those first few shows where you weren't sh sure if this was actually going to work. You know, people just discovering you and look, we've all had those heartbreaking moments where you put a lot of time in and nobody comes to see you, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, honestly, the good life is is half of a love song to New York and half of a like breakup song to New York, even though I knew that I was like stuck with her. That was my first I made that in my first year in New York. And so when I got there, when I got I went to Manhattan College in the Bronx. So I'm up at like 242nd Broadway up in like ass Bronx. And it took me forever to get down to anywhere in Midtown. And then I was like part-time on campus, but I was working a waitress job and a nanny job or whatever. And by random happenstance, I was like singing around one of the restaurants I was working at. And one of these patrons was like, oh, I used to be a bartender at the Cotton Club. Mm. And, and she's like a million years old. And she was like, I could get you an interview with the, or an audition with the owner. And I'm like sick because in my brain, I'm like the cotton club, the cotton club, right? Which in reality has since it's, you know, major heyday of Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong and Billie Holiday and all that has changed names and management like five times. And yeah. the current cotton club, which may not even still be open is essentially a, an old, um, it was a car dealership. <laughs> and they put, they put a stage in there and it was it was nice enough right but that was like my first gig was me every friday going to sing jazz standards in a black dress for like a hundred bucks at this you know cotton club as it was in 2014 or whatever and i thought i really didn't think that was it because it was the first time that i was getting paid to sing and I was good at bringing standards. And I was like, cool, I'll cruise the wedding and like restaurant New Year's Eve party circuit for a second. Right. But I found the straight ahead jazz community, especially as a female in the industry, it was just like problematic and not the one for me. Like it was the only job that I had a strict dress code at. That was like, you have to wear yeah. makeup, you have to wear heels, you have to wear a black dress. And I was right. like, okay. So I dealt for a little bit and then eventually just getting to that gig was too taxing and, and I wasn't enjoying college. So decided to leave, I moved to Brooklyn and then it was kind of just me forcing myself to go to open mics and like Rockwood one and Arlene's and stuff and just see, kind of get a scope of what was going on in the scene. And after a while you like see the same people play with different bands or whatever. And you're like, Hey, let me take you to coffee. I really like the way you play bass or whatever. And I started striking up these relationships. And when we went in to make the good life and the first couple gigs, I was quite literally like hiring the only bassist, the only drummer, the only guitarist, the only horn players I knew or whatever. And we made this record. And then through the course of making it, I formed relationships with people where they could bring it as hard or they could bring it harder, but like the vibe was better because yeah. I knew from the beginning that I wanted to imagine this like very familial, a large group, but that we all vibe together like a family, like a community. 
And so honestly, in the course of recording that EP, I ended up replacing folks and going back and retracking rhythm section and retracking horn overdubs and stuff. Um, and then we put it out. We played a couple little gigs. I remember playing uh, Rockwood Music Hall Stage One on a Wednesday at 7 yep. p.m. for like eight people uh-huh. and a tip bucket. And it was a terrain wreck. Um, and then the next thing I knew, I quite literally, you know, with no idea of how to navigate the industry or how to promote a record or, you know, press or anything, Discover Weekly on Spotify went bananas with the feeling. And then two weeks later, went bananas with Kick It To Me. And then suddenly there was this demand for shows. And every hmm. time we would play something, it was like the it was fuller and fuller. And it was suddenly like primetime Friday and Saturday spots. And then. The next thing we knew, we had a manager and all these people that wanted to work with us. And and we had this incredible run in 2019 where every single room that we played in New York, and we must have played eight shows in New York, but every time we played a show, we had to double the space in capacity and every single show was sold out. So suddenly it was like, holy shit, we got to get on the road, which is a whole new ball of wax and finances and stuff. But uh, yeah. Yeah, it was it was great. We're relatively new to, to touring, to be honest. We're pretty green to it. But yeah, yeah I, guess I, I, just uh, you, I just gave you everything. My bad. I went from 2013. to No, it's good. Real quick. Well, I just came in contact with your music recently and then realized uh, we have the same agent, basically. So right. I was like, I hit up our agent. I was like, and you haven't told me about her. Why? <laughs> How dare you? Yeah, well, now we know each other. Yeah, but I think what you guys are doing uh, is always encouraging to me as someone who likes to mash genres together, uh, especially roots music, folk music, and funk soul. Um, And, you know, you guys, I think, come at it from a vocal standpoint first, almost. A lot of these songs, um, I mean, look, the new track that you just put out, the cover, um, the Tears for Fears hit Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Yeah. It almost begins like an acapella uh, yeah. rehearsal, you know, like you're in the bathroom just trying out something before a show. Yeah. And then it just builds and builds. And I love that type of stuff because it could exist in any space, right? Yeah, for sure. Like you guys could play a sold out Brooklyn Bowl show or you could be playing that in the subway and people would gather around, you know? Yeah. And I'm like in because I think sometimes when you have a big band and I know this, you overdo it right with showing off the muscle of the band, right? The horns, the drums, you're like, I want to blitz you. So you pay attention, but the smaller moments are actually what bring people in for me. I'm realizing that 10 years in sometimes. There's no turning back. I think what we have going on is interesting. You mentioned the word kind of genre blending. Um, 
we all come from very different studies of music. Like we've got a hard rock guy and a world guy and a Latin groove guy and a straight ahead jazz guy. And the girls come from like gospel and Broadway and all this different stuff. So I think what's interesting about the project is because we have so many different musical influences, we're not limiting ourselves to this is a song where the horns blow your face off because mm -hmm. we're a band with horns. You know what I mean? Like we're also a band that happens to have three very, very powerful singers who are, you know, front people in their own right and could front their own projects. So I think the way that we kind of keep it fresh and the friend sound is the point is that not every song sounds the same. And we've kind of made this decision to not, limit ourselves to oh we're a folk band or we're a funk band or a jazz right. band or whatever is you know it's nice to like denim jacket slams you with like a really complex like double horn line and sometimes the horns are just pads and we have songs that the horns aren't even on right. and you know the girls i think that with me and the two girls, it's just this really ridiculous thing where we're all such good singers with like ears of steel that half of these BGV parts, I don't even write. I'll just be singing and I sings the low and Myra sings the high and we just find it. But with that one, we knew that we wanted to give everybody wants to rule the world like an enormous capacity to grow. So we were like, okay, how do we start it off with the most space to grow possible? And we decided to just make it a, a acapella thing that grows and we do it live too it helps that one of our singers has perfect pitch and she just it's like always pulls nice it, pulls yeah she pulls it out of nowhere on stage and we sing and then here comes the rhythm section and we're in key so it's fun it's a nice there's another one that starts acapella oh my god i can't remember what it is well the song living room floor off the new ep also i think has um this very emotional vocal bass but i think your lyrics speak to the fact that you you know came from a place of difference and of maybe isolation and you had to find your own community your own home within um this new world that you had to create you know and maybe sure. um it takes a bit of uh hardship and and you know feeling like you're the only one who has this vision to really like be yeah. able to as you say you know I am my own house. I can live within this little world that I've created. Um, yeah. And that's really cool. Woke up nearly six o'clock. It was our last day in Vermont. One of us was still missing. Staying at Tommy's place, doing nothing but playing for no pay. And anybody who wanted to. that tune is it was a reflection on you know quite literally the apartments that were carrying me through my first couple of years in New York and each verse is kind of a different experience that I had on the living room floor in one of the apartments I was living in. And sometimes it's like, you know, your buddy's turning 21 and he didn't know what hit him and he wakes up in the morning and he's like, 
you know, you have that special moment at dawn or sometimes it's like somebody leaving you in the middle of the night and there's a fight and they're pouring wine everywhere. And sometimes, you know, uh, the, the last verse is like my dad came to visit me and I like made pad thai or something. And he, I was, he was really impressed with whatever I made. And he was like, you didn't have to like get takeout. Like, I know you can't afford that. And I was like, dude, I made that in, in my kitchen, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of this growth moment of it doesn't really growth or I guess recounting growth moments of it's every chapter that you're in is going to end at some point. And it's not always defined by like the house that you're in or the, you know, the time that you're in or the chapter that you're in, it's defined by you. And so if you can, you know, find enough peace with yourself and, and find home within yourself, then like you're always taken care of. I will not let myself And when I say it that way, it sounds super sappy. But if you listen, you listen to the song, you'll get it. You'll get it. Yeah, we're all in our own lane and like we're our own house. It doesn't matter if what kind of apartment you're in. Doesn't matter if you're poor. It's like you got to take care of number one. If you were a teacher now, if you kept going in your college experience, what would you be teaching, you think? Uh, I mean, I was studying early childhood ed and it's funny, the, the like pedagogy and like early childhood ed are, have always been huge interests of mine. Um, and I actually have a whole previous life before like the friends kicked off where I was a kid's music player. Like I was entertaining mm. kids and like playing keys for a kid's essentially pre-K curriculum and then me and a friend formed a kids duo and we did this like tour of all the Brooklyn public libraries and made a whole crap ton of money. But, um, I joke with the band that everybody's fired in 10 years and I want to be an iconic kid show host, a la like Pee Wee Herman or Mr. Rogers. Um, so I don't know. I think I would have, I would always regret if I hadn't tried this super atypical, throw yourself into the world, see what happens. I mean, like, I'm a queer woman in New York City and I want to front an eight person band and it's going to be badass and we're going to do something no one's ever done before. And we're going to have two saxophones, right? Like I, there's the only, it's the kind of thing where I, I would have regret it forever if I didn't just jump in and try it. Yeah. And I think if it hadn't popped off in, I don't know, a year and a half, I probably would have gone back to school and it would have been fine. I would have had a great time, you know, teaching babies how to talk and count or whatever but yeah. I, I i needed to give it a shot i had to you know i think also uh it helps being young and sometimes somewhat ignorant about like the craziness of having such a large band like if yeah. i would have oh, done yeah, this now <laughs> you know in my mid-30s i would be like why would i even attempt that but when i started dust bowl more like 24 25 i was like working in advertising and i would just like get like some small bar that would agree to put us on the board in pencil and i would just like yeah. get as yeah. many people to show up as possible we would have like a 10 piece band in a bar Woo! that could fit 12 people you know like 
it was like we were the audience and the music, yeah. <laughs> you know, and sure. I think partially it comes from a place of insecurity. Like I have a bit of a, you know, like many of us, an imposter syndrome where I'm like, if oh. I'm just playing these songs on my guitar, no one's going to care, but they're going to care if the trombone and the trumpet and the clarinet are going full speed because you can't yeah. deny how awesome that feels. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've never wanted to be a solo singer songwriter. No, Ever. No, never, never, you know? never. I, I, I mean, you just spoke to something interesting. It's like I don't, I don't think anybody could start a project with a million people in it at thirty because when I'm twenty, all the people I'm, my peers are twenty, and they're all at the formative stages of their careers. So I remember right. these conversations that were like, "We're gonna play Rockwood." on a Wednesday for a tip bucket. I'm going to pay you $25 a gig. I'm going to go in the hole 250 to pay you all. Cause I'm going to make yeah. 40 bucks in tips, but in a year we're all going to eat real well. Are you in or are you out? And a lot of the guys were like, I'm out. But a couple of them were like, I'm in. And we just formed those relationships over time. And now we're here as where I think if you're 30 and you're like, you know, I, I want to form a, a eight piece band. The trombone player is going to be like, well, here's my rate, like send me the charts. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it'd be very different, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. We, we, I don't think any of us knew what the hell was going on. And we were like, let's all get together on this, you know, it's like, like a startup. The, drummer, the drummer's on the floor, dude. Like to, what half of the, half of the rhythm section is standing on the floor. Cause these stages are so little. And it, it, you also spoke to this, like, you said insecurity. I don't know if I'm going to pry by, by speaking to that again, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I never ever wanted to do it solo. And I remember when I was 15, I played my first gig and I played a couple gigs after that by myself and I was so uncomfortable and I don't know. It feels better to be a part of a collaboration. Yeah. And I wanted it to be a big project because I, you know, I kind of had a hard time making friends in like middle school and high school. And I had friends, but none of them are like still around. And so I wanted this, like, I was like, let me find all the misfits and like put them at one lunch table and we'll have a great time. And, and that's what's, that's what's going on now. I mean, all I really did was say, I need a rhythm section. I need two saxophones. I need two backup singers. And, and then we just like, found the people but yeah I mean recently now that we have some sort of visibility in the city or whatever somebody offered me it was like a friend and it was a pretty cool opportunity can you come do this set like four songs but you know it, the setup and also the budget doesn't allow for you to bring the band so I was like whatever let me do it solo uh -huh. and it was the first time I had ever played solo since like establishing this project and I hated it I hated it <laughs> every second of it and the band was in the audience yeah and i was like just come up and like play unplugged it's so i is this feeling of every eye is on me it's like you're naked that, yeah it was like i was naked and being on stage with the band it's like i've ne never ever have i felt nervous never honestly there's an excitement there's like an adrenaline but i never have nerves because i know that if I go up, if I forget the words or whatever, if I look at Kellen the right way, he's going to solo for 32 bars. You know, it's, there's yeah. this trust there that it's, I trust myself less when they're not there. Well, I think on this new EP also, you are diving into, uh, you know, 
some more sexy terrain, let's say, you know, uh, a song like <laughs> Jack, Jackie Onassis, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a mature, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah. queer love song, let's say. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I love this idea of like a young girl looking up to Jackie O and being like, man, if I was around back in the day, we would have had an affair. Like that's just, oh my God, I just can't. Real. I'm about to tell a story that I haven't yet. About the most intelligent woman that I ever met. She looked like Jackie on asses. Top of her classes. I'm doing my best just passing by. I'm so it's funny. Um, I went to an all girls Catholic. Imagine that. And How was that? It was exactly the way you think it was. Um, abstinence only etc anyway produces, <laughs> it produces really interesting young adults but i mean it was great you know i i'm a, i'm a better leader now as an adult because of my years there but any case it's not the best place to have those sorts of feelings because you might get expelled and also you're deaf gonna go to hell so figure that out so i mean it took me a really long time to write that song and as much as it is a love song it is also like a kinship song to womanhood and you know some of the friends that i made there who for the first time like taught me how to embrace my womanhood it was the kind of place where it was like this is what we do like we produce strong female leaders like powerful mm. women who can take care of their own the comparison of jackie o pretty much always i'll come up with lyrics first but for some reason i was just like in the shower one day and i was a bit and then I just came up, she looked like Jackie Onassis. And then I started uh -huh. thinking about, you know, who is Jackie Onassis? And she's just this like plain Jane girl next door, like fearless in the face of tragedy kind of lady. And, and so I was just thinking about those women in my life in that time period who didn't know what their friendship meant to me or who didn't know that I had crushes mm -hmm. on them because they were just right. super the plain Jane. And it all, I kind of rolled them all into this really strong, confident lady who doesn't really need to be consistently affirmed. She just knows, you know? Let's say you run for office since the uh, governor of New York just had to resign. Um, that was a tricky one. I was not expecting that. Let's just say by a quirk of history, you know, yeah, yeah, you become the new governor of New York. Sweet. What would be the first like legislative push that you would put into the world? Like what would be the coolest law that you could impose oh, God. in New York? Oh, wow. Free fruit snacks for everyone under 10. Oh my God. I love it. It's like, I or like healthy fruit snacks. Yeah, yeah. It's like IHOP where you eat free under 10. Uh, but every place is like that. Um, I think there needs to be a, I mean, I'm not president. I want to say universal health care system, but the United, the, the United States healthcare system is one thing. New York City's health program is like not what it could be. I think that needs to be a lot better. I think okay. we need to fund the New York City public schools a lot better than we do. And I guess if I had to pinpoint it down to one cool thing I would do would be healthy lunches for all those kids and everybody eats free. Great. 
Yeah, that's what I would do. I'm sure if you gave me another 15 minutes in the right lighting to think about it, I would come up with something even weirder. But It's just amazing how over and over again, men in positions of power, like, don't get how inappropriate behavior eventually will become not yeah. okay. Like, yeah, like they can't conceive that four, five, 10, 15 women are not going to speak out eventually, especially in these times. Like, which planet do you live on, bro? Yeah, like, no. Like, and it's why? funny. Like, I was, what the hell was I watching? I was watching Catch Me If You Can with Leo DiCaprio recently. Uh -huh. I don't know why I had never seen it. And that movie probably only, came, that movie came out, what, like 20 years ago? And it's kind of set to take place 20 years before that. So we're talking about like 40 years in the past. And some of the dialogue is just like so misogynistic and so devastating. And this is true of kind of really all sorts of media that aren't as, you know, didn't come out in the last five years. And it's a shame because everybody's, oh, well, back in the day it was okay. Or right. I, I, I could talk like that. Or women knew their place better in the past. And it's like, what the fuck, man? Like, first of all, for you to not have the foresight to think ahead with the way that we're progressing and second of all for you to not see i don't know i'll, I'll say this <laughs> okay i'm gonna harass all these women and then i'm gonna go into a position of great visibility and they're all gonna have access to my office phone number if they want it like what's wrong with you yeah you know it's a mess it's a mess and i hate i hate it with this what you said about what makes you think it's not going to catch up to you you know, it doesn't matter that it, it made more sense in the past. It doesn't matter that it was more acceptable. It doesn't matter that everybody was doing it. It, it. it doesn't, it shouldn't have mattered. You didn't have a conscious then. So let's talk about that now, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's movies that I've loved my whole life. Singing in the Rain is like a classic in our family, which we yeah. rewatched on our projector outside. Yeah. And me and my sister know every line of that movie. But mm -hmm. like for the first time, when we watched it a month or so ago, it like kind of was like disturbing at times, yeah, yeah. like how yep. that sort of back in the day, like, all right, lady, you know, what you say yeah. doesn't matter, you know, and you're like, yeah. oh, God, Literally. they're doing that like every scene, you know, yeah. and we yeah. had no concept of that as kids. We just sort of yeah. like, oh, they're funny, you know, vintage yeah. stereotypes and what a great time to be around you know exactly. yeah it's i think we write off a lot to oh that was indicative of the times or it, it made sense at the time is okay well it's not behavior for you to model your life after now and it doesn't mean that it was okay when it happened it just means that society was having less of a conversation about it well that song you open the ep with uh whatever we feel yeah. i think has this sort of light-hearted snark behind it you know where yeah. you're like look you know we're all doing what we want to do but you can do you it's almost just like kind of do it over there and <laughs> don't bother me with your bullshit yeah yeah well it's just like listen if you don't agree i'm gonna keep doing me so like what i don't give a shit but but keep doing you though because that's important too because i can only i'm i can only do me if you're doing you as well you know and if i'm begging you for permission to do me i gotta give you permission to do you and I think it, that's another one of these tunes where I think that 
I want to be a storyteller. And I think if I have stories to tell that made sense to me when I was younger, like Jackie O was a you know tune that took me 10 years to write or whatever, I should make these stories as accessible to as many people as possible. And I think that uh -huh. goes hand in hand with my, you know, deep love of like kids entertainment. I've just always had this fascination with it. And whatever we feel was one of those tunes where I was like, I want to get videos of like toddlers dancing to this song. And then when they're old enough to talk, they'll understand that it's like, it's whatever you feel like you have to be yourself. You have to do you. And then actually on this most recent tour, we had a couple come up to us afterwards and they said, we found out about you because our daughter's pre-K was playing whatever we feel. And I was like, sick, I did it. So if you're 30 and you're trying to access it from whatever you're accessing it from, it makes sense to you. It's a song about self-expression. It's a song about believing in yourself. And it's a song about not taking yourself too seriously. But if you're four, it's got a great melody and it just keeps telling you to be yourself. And that translates as well. I think we underestimate kids a lot. Um, Saw It Coming is a song that we put out a couple years ago that is in a similar vein where kind of the writing goal was let's make sure absolutely everybody can benefit from this song. So whatever we feel is very... Um, playful and childish in that way uh, on purpose It's like a updated version of it's your thing. Do what you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell you. I, could do. <laughs> I was actually coming from, I was deeply inspired by this. It's so funny. The song express yourself by the, the it's like Charles Wright in the 57th street men's drum. Something like the name yeah. of the artist online is this huge long thing. Express yourself. You know the song, Express Yourself. Yeah. And the reason yeah. I love that song so much is it's like the only real lyric that he repeats is express yourself. And then everything else is just kind of like nonsense syllables that make sense. And he's doing a lot of like screaming and hooting. And then there's just the horns are being silly. And it was it was just like that that struck for me. It's like, yeah, express yourself. And if it's like dumb and quirky, it, it doesn't matter so that that I is a reads in the that is a tough that is a tough name to fit on a marquee charles wright and the watts 103rd street rhythm band <laughs> i was close when i was at 57th street <laughs> the watts double it third street rhythm band nice yep there you go if you could tell your young queer self at the girls school something now like if you could go back in time and give yourself a little advice what would you tell yourself um you're gonna make friends you're not gonna go to hell uh your parents will always love you and you're one of those people that was born to make art so do that 
you know? <laughs> Did they actually really tell you that you were going to go to hell? Is that still a thing? <sighs> or is it implied? It's, well... Okay, if we're being transparent here, here's here's to the to the audience of your podcast, whoever they are. Um, it was abstinence only education, so my sex ed was not learning about how to have safe sex. It was if you have premarital sex, you will go to hell. That's not what God wants. You have to wait for your husband, and the conversation of homosexuality was never directly like they weren't like today we're going to talk about homosexuality but what i do remember was this hard and fast because we had a really she was super she was crazy but she was super vocal like our sex ed teacher and religious life teacher or whatever and she was really big up on this like love the sinner hate the sin thing which is just uh -huh. a mess and it was kind of like if somebody is gay and they believe that they're born gay it is their moral obligation to abstain from romance and sexual encounters for their whole life because that's what God wants. God's mm. God wants men and women to be together. And so if somebody is born with attraction to the same gender, it's their moral obligation to not act on that and live a celibate life. Otherwise what? Otherwise they're sinning. And if you're sinning on purpose, you're going to hell. Mm. So it was, it was like that. And we knew like there were girls in the school that knew about other girls that felt a particular way or whatever. And it was difficult to, it wasn't something we could even talk to about each other because there was so much of a conversation about don't be bad, you know, right. like anything bad, like don't be late to class. Don't not do your homework. Um, don't talk back to the sisters. Uh, don't be late for mass and don't, be into girls was just mm. kind of implied, you know? Don't they know from previous experiments like prohibition in the thirties that when you tell people not to do something mm -hmm. really doesn't work with human <laughs> psychology. Also at a certain point, yeah, unless you're involving, just... the, unless you're involving the spiritual and there's this aspect of, if you, if you screw up this life, it's going to suck when you die. You know, that helps. I think keep people in line. I mean, even uh, Pope Francis said, who am I to judge? That was like his yeah. famous Wait, quote a few years I, ago. Okay, so I love Pope Francis. And I will also say, like, mm. yeah, man. but I'll also say um, my faith was a huge part of my identity in high school. And that was like my whole world was being Catholic. And in retrospect, I'm glad that I did all the mission trips and retreats and encounters and service gr groups and stuff. And because it made me a better leader. And it also made me a free thinker, kind of it did the opposite work that I think they were setting out to do. And I think I dove so hard into that faith identity because everybody at my school that like had friends and was well liked by teachers was like a super duper church girl. Mm -hmm. And I was like, cool, I want friends and I want adults to like me. So I got into that. And then I think in the chaos of my brain and realizing that you know, from the time I saw Aladdin when I was 12, I had feelings for boys and girls. Like when I got to high school and I was in that environment, that churning in my in my head and what my parents didn't know and what the school didn't know and all that. I think I really gravitated towards the like order and rules to follow 
of a faith environment because it made me feel like so long as I'm doing these things, like I'm good, I guess. Like, right. Right. I'm a good person. So I threw a lot of energy and a lot of time and a lot of years of my life into being a great Catholic. And do I look back sometimes and be like, I wish that once I had like snuck a drink or stayed out late or whatever, like, absolutely. I don't have these like formative teenage rebellion stories, right? but also it's all good because I love myself deeply now. And also I'm a rock star now. And also whatever, it made me a great leader and it, and it, it taught me how to, um, recognize sometimes when rules need to be broken, you know? What do you think was the most rebellious thing you did as a young person? Shoplifting? Uh, maybe, yeah. Um, I mean, I had a girlfriend nobody knew about. That was one. Oh, shit. Yeah, that was a whole thing. Um, and yeah, I probably maybe stole a nail polish from a stevs at some point oh, i know that i did that i can't remember when but i'm almost certain that i did that i never had any faith type guilt really imposed on me from my mom's jewish side my dad's catholic side yeah but i had this sense of like right or wrong that was like very deep yeah that like i could not even steal a pack of gum it would be like what would the shop owner think of me for sure. Oh, yeah. Like, how dare I ruin their day type thing? You know, oh, they, what were they going to have to chase after me? They would have to, heard. Yeah, like <laughs> it was like this, like even like missing school. And I was not like a goody two shoes. You know, I would smoke with the kids in yeah. the alley sometimes and smoke weed from like 14 on. But like I couldn't miss school. It would be like if yeah. I'm not like dying of the flu, I have to go to school. Wow. What my teachers would be like, Zach is clearly like not in it to win it now. You know, yeah. it was oh, like a competitive yeah. thing, I think. And maybe that comes from, you know, having parents, grandparents that like just want you to do well, you know? Yeah. And you're like, yeah, if yeah, I yeah. don't want to let them down. Like, I don't like, I don't want to be a bad person, you know? Like, if For I didn't sure. go to I school, mean, I would be like a bad person or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that played. A, I mean, I was raised by Italian women, so that helps. It's like don't let the women in your family down, right? Like, be a good kid. So that was there too. But then when I like threw myself into being Catholic, like the point of being Catholic is like feeling guilty, and that's why you do things. And then when you are guilty, you have to go tell a priest that you're guilty, and then it just like goes away, and you're good again. So there's this. I mean, all through any sort of faith-based literature, any sort of like hero's archetype there's always this aspect of like guilt being associated with catholicism and yeah that was heavy for sure and then when i got to the city and i started doing this thing and i was reconciling with the fact that there were other things that i wanted to be aspects of my identity and my personhood like suddenly i was allowed to be a musician i was allowed to like dress how I wanted. I was allowed to be queer. I was allowed to have my hair however I wanted. I was allowed to, you know, um, make art and like stay out late and stuff as my like doctrinal faith started to take up less space in my 
identity, I was like, I, it was a, it was a huge depressive point for me because I was like, oh my god, who am I? Right? Like, does God miss me? Is God uh-huh. sad because I don't talk to Him all the time anymore? And I, I just, you know, I found, and I still consider myself somebody who's very in tune to the spiritual and um, very in tune with being a good person and serving the betterment of humanity and the planet, but not just following rules in order to like check off boxes to be considered good by the institution of the church, I guess. Well, I think the other side of it is when you start to really separate yourself from faith or spirituality or, or believing in this sort of good force in the universe. Yeah. And you start just, just sort of relying on yourself and your art and your friends there there's also a dark side to that because i think the problem is i've found that i gain almost all of my happiness from like the stuff that i create and the things that um can be achieved but the problem is that when you do that as your profession there's a lot of like lulls there right we're like yeah we've played for 10,000 people at some festival. Yeah. But then the next night you're playing on the Tuesday night after that festival and there's yeah. 12 people there. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your faith is like shaken immediately. You're like, wait a second. Like I thought we were golden gods yeah, and really yeah. <laughs> you're a working band that has to now keep going on this tour, you know? Yeah. And yeah, we sure. just I mean, we, we just canceled some shows in the South, uh, partially because it's not safe down there, really, uh, in yeah. small clubs. But selfishly, I will admit that I didn't want to go across the country to lose money to play for like fifty people oh, and have my like anti-vax protests, you know, because we would maybe demand that at certain venues. I I yeah. sort of conceded defeat, and I was like, you know what? let's call this a day and come back when it's a little safer. Yeah. I don't know when that's going to be. And I felt bad for some of the folks in Atlanta and Nashville who were like excited to see us, but also was like, I don't know if I can handle that mm-hmm. angst and humiliation right now. I, I'd rather just play the festival in Virginia and come home. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those big anchor dates that pay to get you out on the road are the best. And then every now and then, I mean, also, again, we're like really green to touring. We haven't done much of it. And I almost worry how we're going to be perceived as an enormous band from a far left city with, you know, people of color and queer people. And, you know, yeah, we're running around doing wearing whatever the hell we want and making rock and roll or whatever. Like, are we going to have a tough time in Middlesbrough, Kentucky? Like, maybe. But I'm excited to to go and, and present that experience for whoever it is in Middlesbrough, Kentucky that wants to be a part of the community. And hopefully they can treat it as like a mixer, you know, and meet people like them in, in, in the same place. But I mean you hit the nail on the head that it is pretty selfish to be like, let me just like blow out whatever in New York and then like go kick ass in Atlanta and then like get on the flight and sleep on the way home. But it, it's, you have to re-access those days of, I just need to play for whoever shows up because 
I need to play. And because if 10 more folks hear about me tonight and I leave with like 10 people that know about my band, then that has to be good enough. I will say I haven't meditated on this in a long time, but it is shocking how quickly we forget that like us going to play whatever club for 50 people in the middle of the country is reminiscent of how it used to be in our hometown. It's, it's funny how you forget that so quick. And that's the thing, you know, you have that song, talk it up, uh, which I love uh, where you're talking about giving them what they came here for. Right. You're just going to leave it all out there. Mm -hmm. Just you're going to expel whatever demons you have. And then the audience is going to, uh, expel their demons with you right mm-hmm. um and it feels kind of like a musical theater piece for me that mm-hmm. one it's like dropping into a broadway musical about like we're all coming together to experience the energy you know yeah yeah, yeah. well that one was it like is the dawning of the age of the yeah. world, you know but like that, that song feels like uh you know the mission statement of what a lot of us do it's like we're yeah. gonna go out there and we're going to give it everything. And I hope that's enough, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that one was the big, like, love song slash hate song to New York of that whole EP, which was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I left school and I'm like waitressing and not making enough money. I'm commuting in the middle of the night to get back to my apartment. There's no AC, la, 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 la. But then when your grandma who was really scared about you moving to the city calls you you have to be like yeah every day on the train i get to see the empire state building and you have to like fuck it up even to yourself to get yourself to to remind yourself that you made the right call because it takes a long time till it feels like you made the right call every night of every week he's proving everybody Stop it now, come on and give them all what they came here for. Never been done the same before. Talk it up till your face gets sore. Won't you stop it now, come on up. Half of my we'll see the show. Captain, he'll get me so sure. Talking up what I came here for. And I had a deep love of theater when I was young. Do you know Little Shop of Horrors? Yeah. Okay, so the, I was thinking of... T- yeah, I was thinking of Talk It Up very much as that moment in the intro where Seymour's like, poor, all my life I've always been poor. And he's just sitting there talking about this, you know, skid row that he lives in and, and but whatever, you know, there's uptown and there's downtown. And that song was actually, that intro skid row was actually a huge, for some reason, influence on, on Talk It Up. I was thinking about this duality of like what I'm living through versus what it looks like it's i i have family in italy and i went to visit them for the first time the summer between high school and college i don't know where the hell they got this money because nobody else in my family lives like that but (laughs) they had this ridiculous house it was it was like crazy and one of my cousins who was like 15 years older than me she was like you're going to school in new york city and she could like hop on a flight to like wherever she could be in Paris in 45 minutes, whatever she wants. And the idea of New York City as this like global ideal was so strong with them. And then you get there and you're like, yeah, it's amazing, but it gets old super quick. And yeah, it's, it's really, really hard to make it happen unless you figure out a way to make money as soon as you can 
and you got a whole bunch of people that care about you that are going to check in with you and you do something that you like. I mean, like I was working for a startup for a couple of months and I was like commuting to and from Grand Central, both rush hours, five days a week. And I hated my life. But I was thinking about if I spend an extra half hour here, that's an extra 15 bucks that I can pay my band at some point when I start the project or whatever. So yeah, that was a big one about what the hell am I doing here? I don't know, but I better just like talk it up until I, my face is sore and I can't do it anymore. And just like, you know, I wanted a show. I better get on stage. If I get a chance, doesn't matter if there's 10 people, I got to give them what they showed up for. Well, there's something about New York. That's like the, the oyster agitation, creating the pearl, right? Yeah, sure. It's like part Absolutely. of that sort of tough cauldron of yeah. friction that like just creates really amazing art and it yeah, has for hundreds for sure. of years, you know? And, and you figure out how to, like, as a place to live, you figure out how to make it work. You figure out what you need, and then you just do it. And as a place to make art, I I think first and foremost is that the, it's such a, a, a eclectic city that the biggest thing is that there's spaces for art. Because you right. could take, like, everybody in my band and multiply them by three and stick those, you know, 20 people who love making art or whatever in middle of nowheresville and if there's no open mic for them then they can't be themselves so that blew my mind when i got to new york and i had always felt like this big fish duck animal who had no idea what it was doing and then i got to the city every other corner is an open mic and you go to the lower east side and it's like you walk out of one 250 person venue and you step into a 500 person venue there was so many opportunities to consume right. and to make art you know let's take it out with the, the title track let's throw a party okay. um it's funny there was a review i think of this record that was like a little like dismissive i actually love bad reviews of my work it like yeah, yeah, yeah. shows that I the writer is like very pissed off but it got under their skin which is like better yeah. than indifference for me but there yes. was something about like well you know during this hard troubling time they decided to kind of just say let's throw a party which doesn't feel really uh current or uh right really it's not really they're not commenting on anything that's happening they're sort of just in their little world and good for them that they're having such a fun time you know? It was I like mean, my thinking is like it's so funny because we need that energy. We need like the hope that there is going to be a better time that we I can mean, get yeah. together and like yes. make out with and each other only, in not close only, quarters. Yeah, and not only could you not have a party, quite literally, like listen to this and let's lift your spirits. I mean, like how many? I also didn't want to. How many sad? I'm alone full-length records did we need because i was yeah. thinking about when we all come out of this right and we go back into a live environment and it's safe to do so or we're we're, we're releasing opuses or albums or whatever it's like i'm not gonna want to come out of this deeply sorrowful painful tragic period in human history and go to a show where somebody's touring their new record that's about <laughs> being alone room i've had I've, I've done it i've done it i've been there i'm over it and that was i think let's literally call it let's throw a party and let's literally make this song as enormous and obnoxious and like bombastic and chaotic as possible 
Let me put a little like portable party in your ear pods. Feel it, you can see it in your hands and eyebrows. You ain't a kid now, but mama, don't you wish you could lay out that summer sun just getting freckles on your daddy's Chevrolet car hood? Because every other source of media that you're accessing on a daily basis is how many people are dead today, and what sort yeah. of protest is happening, and what can we do about this, and what can we do about that? Like, it's it as, as somebody who wants to make art which impacts people and resonates with people um everybody was getting enough of that you know well Ugh. keep doing what you do i uh, i'm really into it and um i hope people keep discovering you everywhere you go oh thank you so much this was a joy you we i didn't know we were going to talk about god I didn't know we were going to talk about the presidents. This was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Ooh, let's throw a party. Somebody's turning 30. Ooh, and we look this good since we don't even know since when. Let's throw a party. I finally made some money. Ooh, and can't dig it, baby. I finally dig myself again. There she goes now. The one and only Sammy Ray of Sammy Ray and the Friends. You can go to SammyRay.com. That's R-A-E.com. And uh, they're going to be playing some shows in her home state of Connecticut and in uh, Pennsylvania at the Hamilton October 1st at the 8x10 in Baltimore, Maryland October 2nd. Lots of cool stuff coming up, so check that out. And they have their new single out, which you heard a little of earlier, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. One of my favorite covers and their EP, which dropped earlier in 2021, Let's Throw a Party. Please check it out. If you want to get uplifted a little bit, get your head out of the doom scroll, listen to Sammy Ray and the Friends. It will do good for your soul. I apologize if our episode this week sounds not as great as some of the previous ones. We had some technical difficulties as I was trying to record this. There's also construction going on next door, and I'm trying to crank my audio. And our dog has fleas, and I got stuck in the Phoenix airport on the way to a gig the other day. So I'm glad we got this into the world, and I hope you enjoy it. If you do enjoy the show, please leave us a kind review in iTunes, and please donate to the show, znlupitan at gmail.com on PayPal. As I mentioned, my group Dust Bowl Revival will be heading up to the Bay Area this weekend, September 18th in Santa Cruz at the Mountain Soul Fest, and September 19th at the Hot Monk Tavern in Novato, playing outdoors. Please get vaccinated so live music can really come back. And starting on October 30th in my hometown of Evanston, Illinois, we'll be launching our full run of record release shows. Yes, our record came out in 2020, but we didn't get a chance to really share it, so we're coming back through the Midwest, East Coast, and New England. Please check it out, DustBowlRevival.com, and we'll be joined by Smooth Hound Smith. As always, the show on the road is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lubiton, and we are a part of the BGS Podcast Network. Stay safe, stay creative, and we'll see you on the trail.
Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.